Hi everyone, this is Kevin Ann at Eagle Strong Voice. Welcome to Here We Stand. And welcome too to the year 2022, believe it or not. It's January 2nd and you're listening to the Voice of the Republic and the Resistance. And that of course was our good brother Phil Oakes singing Do It While We're Here. And that of course is the best philosophy at all, of all, folks. The preciousness of every moment of life. And often we only appreciate that when we've gone through a loss or a death, or maybe death is approaching. And, of course, it can approach at any moment for any of us. And that's why we cherish it so much, every moment of life, which is an opportunity to be and to act. But for me, the guide to acting has always been this one. Remember the poorest person I've ever met and ask myself if the action I'm planning will be of any use to him or her, especially if they're a child. Phil Oaks sang during the 60s, and he died likely killed, officially ruled a suicide, but he was outspoken against a lot of people, as I have been, made a lot of enemies over the years. And today is a special kind of show because, first of all, it's a thank you. Thank you to all the new listeners who are tuned in, especially today, because they've given me funds for a medical procedure I need. For those of you who don't know, and... New listeners, too, by the way, you can follow all our work at murderbydecree.com, republicofcanada.ca, and you can write to me, angelfire101, at protonmail.com. Now that we got that out of the way, let me go into detail about why this is a special show. New listeners who are with us today have been those who have helped to donate money to a procedure I need. A couple of months ago, a kidney stone appeared in the lower left part of my left kidney, and... It was kind of strange because I've never had kidney problems. And I want to put what's happened in the context of everything that's been going on in my life and the life of our struggle to build a republic and to stop these genocidal institutions for the last couple of years because it's very much related to why there's a kidney stone now. Now, this kidney stone appeared in the wake of a number of other attacks and illnesses I've faced. And, of course, being me, I don't tend to share those things with the public at large. Um, don't forget that when you're in the public light, as I've been, it's the, one of the tools of the state and our opponents of church and state to whack somebody in a big way publicly. They did that when they first threw me out of the United Church in the late 90s for bringing out the residential school crimes. They've done this over the years, taking my children, pillaring me, preventing me from working as a warning to everyone. It's like when people go up against the state and say, I'm not paying taxes. And they say, good, now we'll throw you in jail and scare everyone. So I made a point of not adding to that fuel to the fire by saying, you know, too much of what I've been going through and simply dealing with it. But this is different this year because the kidney stones came out of a series of things that happened. And let me put it in context. For the last couple of years in Canada, we have not only built active resistance, but an alternative to the existing society. Under the auspices of the Republic, starting early in 2020 when the COVID police state broke out, we built 43 functioning common law assemblies. Now, these weren't simply things that came and went. These were permanent assemblies of people who had sworn citizenship in a new Republic outside the jurisdiction of the genocidal Crown of England and its churches that had been lawfully convicted and disestablished for crimes against humanity in Canada and abroad. And so we have the lawful and imperative right to build these assemblies to create another sovereign jurisdiction. And we did that actively. There were 43 functioning assemblies by mid-2020 across all of Canada and inspired in, uh, people in six other countries to start doing the same thing. So it was really beginning to take off. Now, this wasn't simply mere protest. This was building an alternative. So, for example, in the assemblies and in the common law courts set up out of those assemblies, they passed laws. I remember with the very first law we passed in Parksville, British Columbia, on Vancouver Island, it banished all COVID measures. It said in our community, Parksville, anyone who tries to impose masking, distancing, quarantining, or vaccinations against our consent and against our own opinion, those are offenses and people can be brought into our courts and tried. Now, as soon as we started doing that, that's when the boot came down. There were 43 assemblies. Today, there are six. Six out of seven of those assemblies were wiped out, and it happened through a number of methods, uh, through all you know the overt uh, black ops that we're all too familiar with now, 
uh, we've, if you read my book, uh, Whistleblower Manual, you'll see how they go about doing it. It's very predictable, the way they operate. The rumor campaign, the smear, the um, what the FBI called bad jacketing. You target the most effective organizers, the leaders of the movement, get people to drop away in suspicion. But also, there was a human factor involved, and that is the COVID police state is simply an expression of something that's a germ that's been in our system for centuries and that causes genocide. And it's based on the working reality that people are raised in a slave mentality. They're not taught to think or act for themselves. They don't think they can. And so people, by and large, are afraid of freedom. When you say, now you can pass a law, which everyone liked the idea of in the abstract, but then when it came time to enforce the law, they all backed off, and they actually sabotaged the assemblies themselves. So we had that happening, and that's you know what caused the demise of those assemblies, but what came out of it was something even more solid. Those six assemblies that have survived have been building farms, farming communities off the grid. We've been building up our own schools. We have Republic uh, schools and free universities operating with, uh, like with my situation as an ex-minister, we have ex-teachers, ex-lawyers, ex-judges even, working outside the system to build a new framework. We have schools, courts, medical facilities even operating. And in fact, have been Republic-allied doctors who've been giving me uh, the best advice on how to deal with this kidney stone, which I'm getting to. Um, and so we're building an even more durable grassroots framework for a long-term new country, a new nation, the new Republic of Canada. We're guarding those facilities and those farms with our own sheriffs. We're, we're setting up citizenship schools and even the basis for local citizen militias whose job it is to protect the courts and assemblies and to defend our communities, even against the government. So something very solid has come out of that. Now, early this year, when that system, the new system began to sink roots into the soil of Canada, and we really began to get results, that's when I faced even more serious attacks. A number of things happened to me personally. First of all, I was hit in the uh, spring and summer with, right out of the blue, a case of staphylococcus, which then evolved into what's called cellulitis. And cellulitis is a very dangerous disease. Basically, my whole right leg swelled up to twice its size. It was all red. Um, and at first, it was the first... Uh, diagnosis from a mainstream doctor was said you got cellulitis, you should go on all these antibiotics. And um, I didn't have alternatives at that point. I wasn't in touch with Republic-allied doctors where I was, and so I did that for a while. Now, one of the consequences of taking a lot of antibiotics is it kills the, ger the bacteria in your stomach, and that forms what's called oxalate crystals, which create kidney stones. So very soon after these antibiotics uh, started, and I had to have massive doses of them in order to kill the, uh, you know, the, the severe bacteria in the system. Uh, then these kidney stones developed. So the kidney stone went out of that, what we thought at the time was a case of cellulitis. But here's part B. I had it then diagnosed by doctors outside the system who are allied with our republic, naturopathic healers and others, and they said, nope, uh, that's some kind of poisoning that's happened to you. That's germ warfare at work. And in fact, one of the guys who actually works as a bodyguard for me, um, we just call him J, J period, that's his uh, initial. And uh, he, he has been in, uh, he has had commando training, he's been in military, and he examined me and said, no, no, you've been poisoned, that's germ warfare going on. So I was put on a very stringent uh, naturopathic diet and everything, but uh, whether it's from the antibiotics or whatever, the kidney stone developed. And it's a very odd kidney stone because it keeps growing. It's now 15 millimeters. The size of a normal kidney stone is, say, 2 to 4 millimeters, which can fit through the ureter going into your bladder, um, which is about 4 millimeters wide. Mine is three, 3 to 4 times that size, and it came out of nowhere, and it's just sitting there. And uh, we've had a lot of resistance from mainstream doctors to deal with it. They're um, giving me pretty much the wrong advice all the time, and they're delaying this, so I don't think that's accidental. But we have other doctors who are giving me good advice, and they say when it's that advanced, you can't use what's called lithotripsy. That's sound vibrating energy, which normally breaks up a smaller stone and can pass. 
problem with using lithotripsy sound waves on a stone that big is it can break into a piece then then clogs my ureter and then it's requiring major surgery so the simplest method is simply make a cut in your back extract it fortunately unfortunately i'm outside of british columbia i'm outside any kind of medicare coverage even canadian health coverage uh, doesn't provide for this because it has started before I have the, had health coverage, so it's called a pre-existing illness. It doesn't cover it. So the cost is going to be $30,000 plus. Now, fortunately, we've been able to raise a chunk of that. I don't want to say how much, but we're on the way to raising that. And I'm mentioning all that because I wanted to put it in context that this is one of the prices, again, I'm paying for the work we're, I'm doing. And I think a lot of you instinctively know that you know that this isn't just happening to me randomly or out of the blue. It's the result of being a targeted individual and of having led this campaign for 27 years now. This is the 27th new year that I've been involved in this campaign soon after getting thrown out of the United Church um, 27 years ago this month on January 23rd after I had flagged the reality of the residential school crimes, land theft by the United Church, all of that stuff that followed that you probably know about, loss of my children, family, targeting, blacklisting, the whole bit, that all came out of that stand. And because we're standing on crimes that are continuing, and they're not just in the past, that's why these attacks don't go away. That's why the black ops continue, but that's why we're continuing. And as I said at the start of the show, I am appreciative of every day. I learned this when I lost my children, daily contact with my daughters, Claire and Eleanor. I was just so thankful for every moment with them. Every moment of, together with them was blessed. And I'm, I feel that now about life. You know, when I f- was first diagnosed with this, and the stone keeps growing, and I face the possibility of severe sickness and even death, it wasn't a new thing to me because I had faced that before. The loss of our family, our loved ones, really meaning in life until a new meaning and purpose arose out of my own tragedy. I was used to those kinds of deaths, but it's it's always new in the sense that something comes out of left field and it hits you. But um, I wanted to show all that because that's the context in which my illness is happening. And I don't normally like to focus on myself, but in this case, folks have insisted. And you need to know that whole history of what led to it. Now, the good news, the news that's come out of this, as I flagged in the notice to all of you, Despite the fact of having our assemblies taken down in the way they did and, and were taken down, something very positive came out of that in that we, uh, in the course of setting up those assemblies on Vancouver Island, we had put together a case. We had named 58 people involved in the crime of genocide, not only in the past, but how it's continuing today. The mass murder of Native people by Chinese corporations in British Columbia with the help of the Canadian government and the RCMP the use of children by Pfizer and other drug companies in their testing, drug testing that has killed a lot of them, this genocidal drug company, Pfizer, whose evidence we have about this. We were bringing a case in uh, Vancouver Common Law Assembly Court uh, early in 2021 to indict these people. The arrest warrants were ready. They were about to be arrested. Then our court and uh, their assemblies got attacked and taken down in the same week. But the International Common Law Court of Justice has taken up the slack. This is the court that forced Pope Benedict out of office in 2013. It brought two cases against Pope Benedict, Queen Elizabeth, and the what I call the Dirty 30, those who committed genocide in Canada, forced Pope Benedict to resign, forced three other cardinals named in our indictment out of office, and that same international common law court has reconvened. Now, since September, two things have been happening. First of all, I've been in... Uh, what you could call protective custody, off the radar with our leading members of the court and the assemblies and the republic, we've been leading a fairly underground existence. To allow this court to convene, for the last four months, starting September 15th, the court convened, and it issued summonses against 58 individuals. Now, these include uh, not only the convicted people of church and state who are already implicated in these crimes, of new individuals involving Pfizer Corporation, the Chinese government, and, and PetroChina, uh, others who are going to be named. And the court has done its proceedings. It subpoenaed those people. They didn't respond, which was a tacit admission of guilt on their part. In a court of law, it usually can result in the issuing of an immediate guilty sentence against them. But um, the court has come to its verdict and sentence. And on January 15th, 
the seventh anniversary of the founding of the Republic of Canada, the sovereign republic within whose jurisdiction this court operates within Canada. The verdict and sentence will be released publicly. Now, that's going to go out all over the world and have the same kind of impact it had the first time, if not greater, because of the COVID corporate police state that is now being unleashed, which has meant that this court case is even more relevant to something facing all of us today. And January 15th is a Saturday. It's going to be announced that day in a worldwide uh, YouTube and other broadcast. The next day on this show, that's two weeks today, January 16th, we will be going into detail about what the verdict and sentence is and looking at the charges and specifications against these people and who they are. And today I'm going to give you a little sneak preview of that of the things that um, can be said for now. And um, it's the... uh, the uh, reference to the indictment, the verdict, and the sentence of the, of the International Common Law Court of Justice that met between September 15th and 2021 and January 15th, 2022. And it in- names numerous people in the Crown of England, the Canadian government, the Anglican, Catholic, and the United Churches, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. These are the top people in these agencies. Um, and uh, associated churches, we name the Weyerhaeuser Corporation, the Pfizer Pharmaceuticals, the Chinese government, and uh, uh, executive members of PetroChina, and a host of other private individuals. Now, the general indictment involves that they were uh, uh, engaged in a planning and uh, executing a criminal conspiracy to continue genocide and crimes against humanity in Canada, and of... um, engaging in criminal actions against me and my family, my children, and Indigenous people. Now, they look at all of the evidence gathered over that four months, but also based on the last quarter century of our experience. It's voluminous evidence. Part of it is already online, murderbydecree.com, but there's a lot of new evidence that relates to modern-day child and human trafficking, organ trafficking uh, occurring all over British Columbia, involving disappeared and missing Aboriginal families and others, uh, basically, the organs are being trafficked through the Chinese, but with Canadian corporate and government and police involvement, and um, and those kinds of related crimes. Now, um, the court has also named 14 people who were killed by this criminal conspiracy. We name who those 14 people are, the evidence of people who died of foul play, including three of our activists who died while in hospital. And that's another concern we have, that if I go into a hospital somewhere, I'm not coming out. That's part of the concern we have, but we're going to make measures to make sure that that doesn't happen, including through a presence in the operating room, um, people outside in vigil, legal uh, representatives present, legal documents being given to the doctors performing the operation, the whole shebang. So we're taking all of those measures because we're not going to let this truth be buried. Um And the verdict I won't go into because that's going to be announced on January 15th. But that gives you a sense of the seriousness of what we're doing and why I personally and a lot of other people have been targeted. Now, um, today what I'm going to do is, for the rest of the show, the next 40 minutes, I want to give more of the background. And two of the things I uh, did this year that despite all of the, (laughs) the attacks and the challenges of this year, and they're not over yet, folks, uh, Aid Life Grant, but I had the chance to, to write two very important books. And one of them, the last week's show, which you can see online here at bbsradio.com slash who we stand, if you um, scroll down, you'll see all of our back shows, uh, the archive programs that go back six years now. But last week's show, I have a discussion of these two books. I meet with Owen Lucas. Uh, he and I discussed my two recent books. So I won't belabor that. You can go into that in more detail. But... The first book, um, I call it Memoirs of a Revolutionary, a political biography. And what I do, it's not so much even a personal biography of me, although I weave that through there. But I look at the last 50 years of human history, 1971 to 2021, and I look at how the modern COVID corporate police state came about. It wasn't accidental. It came out of the natural evolution of the multinational capitalist system into what's called a corporatocracy. And that is basically, well, it's interesting because the corporatocracy really was pioneered by Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini in the 20th century. 
because in, in the 1920s and 30s, there was a revolution, but not the kind that we had hoped for. It was the birth of a new political order that represented the bursting of, of uh, the economic system's normal constraints by national boundaries and formal democracy. You had a mega kind of capitalism created. And what that did, it was actually founded originally on a, um, a, the social program of the Catholic Church. They said what you need is a super state. You don't need democracy anymore. You have an, an oligarchy ruling everybody. And that was the ideal Vatican system. That's, in fact, how the Pope sees himself. He's the master of the world. So naturally, the Vatican and now the Chinese are really uh, operating according to the political system, most in line with the corporatocracy's need, which is that everybody's a slave, and you do what you're told, and there's no resistance or due process of law allowed anymore. And you might have noticed that, of course. All the politicians walk in lockstep in in time with a COVID police state where you don't have the rule of law or rights. You don't have the right to say no anymore in their system. So my book goes into the detail of how that system came about. It really started in the 1980s with the whole privatization, Reagan-Thatcher move, to get people brainwashed to think that the corporate sector had the right to determine public policy and that like you get now, Pfizer decides to get everybody to have the shot, so everybody has the shot, because the governments are simply the office boys of Big Pharma, and that's been proved time and again. Um, and so that system started in the 80s, but it really has evolved now to the point where within a generation, there's going to be a single global corporation that everybody works for or doesn't work for. It's interesting now, most of the world's corporations that thinks about 150 of them that run the world economy they only employ one half of one percent of the workforce if you can believe it so what do the 99.5 of every percent of everyone else do well they're expendable and that's part of the hidden agenda of course not so hidden anymore that's the point it's not a hidden agenda but when they're talking depopulation and everything it's a reality and it's coming naturally out of the way the multinational corporate system works now Human beings are just cogs in a machine that can be replaced or thrown away. And that's what I go into in the book. So I urge you to get it at Amazon, ironically, another corporation, but what the hell. Uh, one day we'll have our own printing presses. <laughs> and it's called Memoirs of a Revolutionary by Kevin Annett, and that's two N's and two T's, folks, and no E on the end. Uh, although, a little side note on family history, um, which involves the second book I'm about to talk about, the uh, Annette, of course, we were Huguenots from France. Those are French Protestants, and we got burned out of there by the Catholic Church in 1572. That night they killed 20,000 Huguenots, and we came to uh, England because Queen Elizabeth I opened their doors, God bless her, to uh, any Protestant dissident anywhere in Europe. And that's how Annette became Annette. And later, after my great-great-great-great-grandfather Philip was a British Army officer, who somehow survived the Battle of Waterloo, and he was given 300 acres of land in, in Ontario, what was then Upper Canada. And that's how the Annas came to Canada. Now, my second book is a novel about that. It's called Land of Liberty, and it's not just about our family history, but the rebellion of 1837 that tried to overthrow the British crown in Canada. And Philip's involvement, ironically, this loyal British officer, Robert Annett, who gets the land in Canada, his son Philip picks up the family flintlock and joins William Lyon Mackenzie and Louis-Joseph Papineau, who tried to overthrow the British crown. And it's a novel about him, but then it also talks about the present time. It puts my own life in the context of my ancestors' struggle, our same struggle, ironically, uh, and thankfully, to carry on his, his defeated attempt to create a republic in Canada, because the rebels of 1837 were defeated. A bunch of them were hanged. Fortunately, not my great-great-great-grandfather, Philip. And, uh, or I wouldn't be here. Um, and the book also, in part three, looks into the future, a possible future of the Republic of Canada winning, but then having to face the global corporatocracy as the chief enemy. So that's my novel, Land of Liberty. You can also get it at Amazon, just put in Kevin Annett, or murderbydecree.com as lists all my other books as well. And that's the uh, background and where we're heading in a nutshell. So I'm very much looking forward to going into more of the details of the court verdict that's coming on January 15th. And then, of course, the enforcement. And that's what we're going to talk about the next day on the air. How to enforce the verdict disestablishing these 
genocidal corporations and churches and government bodies. We have the means now better to do it. We have our own trained sheriffs. We have police coming to our common law training workshops. We're making direct appeals in Canada to the Crown officials to stand down. We've issued stand-down orders to the judges, to the members of Parliament, to the civil servants and the soldiers and police, saying you're serving a convicted genocidal body. Take an oath of allegiance or whatever you want to call it, the Pledge of Citizenship to the Republic of Canada. Come over. We're not going to fight them. We're going to win them over. That's how any revolution succeeds. And so that's going to be just talked about on January 16th. And to join us, to get involved in training, to take out citizenship, to join the Republic Assembly, write to Republic of Kanata, K-A-N-A-T-A, Republic of Kanata at gmail.com. And uh, now we're going to take a break, rest my throat here and my kidney. And uh, we're going to hear a wonderful poem by a Harlem poet called Langston Hughes, who wrote this in the 1930s. It's called Let America Be America Again. And of course, America is the uh, name really for any group of people who know that they're born with inherent liberties. And it's just a matter of acting on that, ignoring statute, ignoring illegitimate corporate regimes, and reclaiming our nation. That's what this Beautiful poem is all about, and I'll be back live after we hear this. Let America Be America Again by Langston Hughes Let America be America again Let it be the dream it used to be Let it be the pioneer on the plain Seeking a home where he himself is free America never was America to me. Let America be the dream the dreamers dreamed. Let it be that great strong land of love where never kings connive nor tyrants scheme that any man be crushed by one above. It never was America to me. Oh, let my land be a land where liberty is crowned with no false patriotic wreath. But opportunity is real, and life is free. Equality is in the air we breathe. There's never been equality for me. No freedom in this homeland of the free. Say, who are you that mumbles in the dark? And who are you that draws your veil across the stars? I am the poor white, fooled and pushed apart. I am the Negro bearing slavery scars. I am the red man driven from the land. I am the immigrant clutching the hope I seek and finding only the same old stupid plan of dog-eat-dog of mighty crush the weak. I am the young man full of strength and hope, tangled in that ancient endless chain of profit, power, gain, of grab the land, of grab the gold, of grab the ways of satisfying need, of work the men, of take the pay, of owning everything for one's own greed. I am the farmer, bondsman to the soil. I am the worker, sold to the machine. I am the Negro, servant to you all. I am the people, humble, hungry, mean, hungry yet today, despite the dream, beaten yet today. Oh, pioneers, I am the man who never got ahead, the poorest worker, bartered through the years. Yet I'm the one who dreamt our basic dream in the old world while still a serf of kings who dreamt a dream so strong, so brave, so true that even yet its mighty daring sings in every brick and stone in every furrow turned that's made America the land it has become. Oh, I'm the man who sailed those early seas in search of what I meant to be my home for I'm the one who left dark Ireland's shore and Poland's plain and England's grassy lee and torn from black Africa's strand I came to build a homeland of the free. The free? Who said the free? Not me. Surely not me. The millions on relief today. The millions shot down when we strike. The millions who have nothing for our pay. For all the dreams we've dreamed and all the songs we've sung and all the hopes we've held and all the flags we've hung, the millions who have nothing for our pay except the dream that's almost dead today. Oh, let America be America again, the land that never has been yet and yet must be, the land where 
free. The land that's mine, the poor man's, Indians, Negroes, me who made America, whose sweat and blood, whose faith and pain, whose hand at the foundry, whose plow in the rain must bring back our mighty dream again. Sure, call me any ugly name you choose. The steel of freedom does not stain. From those who live like leeches on the people's lives, we must take back our land again. America! Oh yes, I say it plain. America never was America to me. And yet I swear this oath. America will be. Out of the rack and ruin of our gangster death, the rape and rot of graft and stealth and lies. We the people must redeem the land, the mines, the plants, the rivers, the mountains and the endless plain, all, all a stretch of these great green states and make America again. Langston Hughes, America be America again. Or let it be for the first time. And that doesn't mean Democrats or Republican or Republican or Democrats. Both parties are controlled by the corporatocracy folks. It's about people reclaiming their own lives. And talk to the folks in Jones County, Pennsylvania. Republicans and Democrats got together across party lines four years ago and stopped the dumping of fracking wastewater on their land because they passed a local ordinance saying our law as the people of this county in Pennsylvania nullifies the state Supreme Court and legislature. We have the power to take back power into our own hands, united together as Americans. That same spirit of sovereign republic, that's exactly what we're trying to give birth to in the fir- for the first time after our defeated revolution in Canada in 1837. Uh, you know, these words that he says are just so beautiful, Langston Hughes. Let it be that great strong land of love where neither kings connive nor tyrants scheme that any man be crushed by one above. A dream so strong, so brave, so true that even yet its mighty daring sings in every stone and brick. And, of course, John Adams put it even more beautifully. Well, as beautifully. Let it be known that liberty is not the gift of princes or parliaments, for many of our rights are inherent and essential. We have a right to them, derived from our Maker. Our forefathers have won liberty for us at the expense of their ease, their estates, their pleasures, and their blood. Liberty is not built on the doctrine that a few rich men have the right to inherit the earth. No. For the lowest and the poorest of the people, by the laws of God and nature, are as much entitled to the benefit of the air to breathe, the light to see, food to eat, and clothes to wear, as the wealthier the king. That is liberty. And liberty will arraign reign in America and Canada and the world. Equality, people. The world given to us in common naturally. No authority over us, save conscience and how you see the Creator. Laws created by us for us can be nullified at any moment. We can walk out of the system at any moment. We have that innate power, according to the laws of nature and God. Now, I said earlier in the show... No measure we take should be taken without thinking of the poorest person you know and asking if it's going to help them. And somebody just sent me an email saying, are you concerned that you might die? (laughs) I think I answered that, but let me clarify a bit more. Why I've been able to do all this is because I wasn't worried about myself, because that's the first way they get you. People are worried about themselves. They're looking at themselves. What might happen to me? Not what's going to happen to that child if I don't act. And so it was always focused on the other. And classic example of that, I was living out of my car two years after I got fired. I was homeless, no money. I saw my kids twice a week, Tuesday and Thursdays, for four hours allotted to me by the court. Of course, I was worried about to find that because they might be taken permanently from me. So, you know, you play along until your illusions get battered out of you. And then you have to learn from your own experience. But in that time with Claire and Eleanor, you know, we tried to have some good times together with a few bucks I had. But one day I had had $10 left and I was on my way 
to see them. I had just enough gas in the car, my broken down car, hoping I could get there. And I had 10 bucks. And suddenly I'm going down Georgia Street. I see this family walking out of the viaduct, a homeless family. I pull over and sure enough, there's six of them. They're native and they're all homeless and they're all starving. So I give them my 10 bucks. What else can I do? They need it more than me. And I'm thinking, how am I going to feed my children tonight? Obviously, I can't. They're going to have to go home after my, quote, visit with them hungry. So we get back in my car, and as I'm walking back to my car, there's a $20 bill lying on the sidewalk. And I was tempted to, okay, go hand the homeless folks another 20 <laughs> okay? But then I realized, wait a minute, this is a message from creation. It's not even a reward. It's just the law of balance. It's you give and you will receive back. And that's, in microcosm, a metaphor for my whole life. I don't think about myself. When I think about myself and ask for things for myself, they never come. I can sit here and pray that my kidney goes away, stone goes away, but it's not going to happen. Only when I'm devoted and thinking of what my purpose is now, how I'm to serve others, how I'm to stop this madness. When I'm focused on that, then I get help. Then the money comes. Then by following your higher purpose and not get caught up in ourselves and this narcissistic, selfish culture we're all seeped in from the beginning. Everything is about this self-obsession, this, uh, you know, narcissism is a good word. All we can see is our own reflection. We can't see beyond ourselves, you know. My dad's generation, talking to him and, and others, they lived through depression and war. They had a very unassuming and, oh, well, kind of attitude to life, if we live, if we die, or whatever. They took life as it came. They didn't have all these obsessive needs to bolster up something that can never be bolstered up, which is a mortality. We're all going to die. The question is, I know what terms that we're going to die. Focused on our higher purpose or running around being afraid of being hurt or losing something. So I had to overcome that. And when I overcame that and focused every day on the needs of others, then I was given help. But only then. It's like, you know, in the Bible when the people are wandering in the desert and manna falls from heaven. And they try to gather up the manna. It feeds them for the day. And they try to gather it up in a jar. But then they open the jar in the morning and it's all rotten. You cannot hoard gifts from heaven. You spend them as they're needed. You don't acquire a lot of worldly wealth and build it up. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. Um, Andrew Carnegie, the uh, robber baron, was a poor Irish guy. And he had a philosophy of never hold on to wealth. That's why he took half his wealth and built libraries all over the United States, the Carnegie Libraries, like the one we used to work out in the downtown east side of Vancouver, would always rally outside the Carnegie Center at our uh, protests. Well, that's because he took his wealth. He said, a man who has wealth hoarded when he dies is a failure. You've got a, you have a public obligation to put that wealth back into the community. And that's always been my philosophy, that you know, my <laughs> Scots-Irish-English ancestry said that's what you do. You live for the people around you, not for yourself, because that's a pointless dead-end sinful existence to live that way. Live for others, and you will be held up. We hold up each other. That's the cooperative model. You know, the cooperative model is spiritually and in every other way we share what we have. We share, like the book of Acts and the Bible. All those who were in Christ held all things in common, were of one mind and spirit, and so there were no poor people among them. Everything was shared. It's simple. So, that's how the miracle happens. The miracle of manna. You use it for the day, and you move on. Trusting in heaven will provide. Now, if uh, you've lived through that sermon, <laughs> it wasn't a sermon really, it was from the heart. And I hope you took it in that light. Um, I want to just end in the last 15 minutes, I guess, with making reference to those two books. And, um, oh, wait, no, I've got, a, I've got one other anecdote I want to share. Anecdote. I want to share with you. And um, I met a guy in 1987. I was one year into seminary training for the United Church Ministry. And I got an offer to go down to Mexico. You know, the, ironically, the United Church, so concerned about Native people in Guatemala, are killing Native people in Canada through their so-called residential schools and hospitals. But, of course, the guilty always have to do these things to console their conscience about their own crime and blood on their hands. So, ironically, I was part of a United Church uh, fact-finding tour to Guatemalan refugee camps on the border, southern Mexico and Guatemala. Now, of course, the big genocide in Guatemala over the 1980s had wiped out about a quarter of a million people, and a lot of the, the Mayan Indians were refugees in these 
whole string of about a hundred, you know, very destitute camps along the Chiapas border, and um, where, not surprisingly, the Zapatista rebellion broke out. And that's another story. But I was down there, and I met this guy. He was a great guy. His name was Brother Fidel, which means faithful. And he had been thrown out of the Catholic Church by the local bishop, as I would be thrown out of the church one day, for getting too close to the Indians. And um, he said to me once, um, it took them 15 years, but the uh, Indians finally turned me into a true Christian. And I had to drop all the doctrine to to learn. But uh, anyway, uh, Brother Fidel... um, was under a death sentence. The local landowners had put out a contract on him because he was, his sermons were talking about doing as Jesus said and taking the land back and sharing the land among all the peasants. He was just quoting the Bible. And so the local landowner got some guys to go and look for him, and eventually they killed him. Two years after uh, I had met him, he was killed. And there was 20,000 Native people at his funeral. And of course, he's not dead. Part of his spirit entered into me. That's why I'm doing the work I'm doing. But um, and the the spirit of so many people with us. But uh, one thing Fidel said, I said to him naturally, as people often say to me, "Aren't you frightened? You know, you know, there's a, a death sentence on your head. There's a hit squad looking for you." And he said, "Oh yeah, I get frightened all the time." He said, "And often I want to get in my Land Rover and just leave, drive away from the camp." But whenever I feel, you know, I said, "Well, why don't you?" And he said, "Well, every time I feel that fear, I go." to the poorest child in the camp. And I look at her, and I realize she can't get away. And so she gives me the courage and the determination to overcome my fear. And I think about that all the time. I got on my bike the other day when I learned about my kidney stone, and I took a drive, because that's what I've always done. I get my bike and ride it off. And I came across a guy lying in a outside a closed mall, all of the stores closing because of this COVID nonsense, and uh, just lying in there in this empty building, lying outside it. And I went over and I talked to him. His name's Johnny. He was from America originally, up here, starving to death, literally starving to death, no money. So I helped him out, got him food, got him some clothing. And then I realized I felt so good after because, not simply for doing the right thing, but this is what we're meant to do for each other. Think of the poorest people among us, and I don't mean poor just materially, but all of us who are so destitute, poor in spirit, poor in hope, poor and unable to believe in ourselves anymore, and find that richness among each other. And that story of William Coombs, our brother who was killed in the hospital, a fellow who saw Queen Elizabeth take those children out of the Kamloops Catholic Residential School, and they were never seen again. And before he was to give testimony, he was murdered, according to his nurse, Chloe Kirker, murdered by arsenic poisoning in St. Paul's Catholic Hospital in Vancouver, February 26, 2011. And William could never go near a Catholic church. He uh, started vomiting spontaneously when he heard a church bell, because they used to have him on a rack, the Catholic priests, and sodomize him with an electric cattle prod. And the cross was hanging above him when they were doing it. And they targeted him because he was a spirit dancer. He had the traditional wisdom, and that, of course, is what the Church wanted to destroy and still tries to all the time in their six satanic cult ritual networks. But they targeted William that way, and he couldn't. He was too terrified. Whenever we started doing Church protests and occupations in Vancouver, the thing that forced the truth of genocide out of the open in 2008, we forced that apology and forced the truth into the open. One day we went into Holy Rosary Cathedral, and I look around. We're occupying inside the church, and there's William inside the building with us. And I said to William, how'd you do this, brother? How did you overcome that fear? And he said, I saw you all go into that church, and I didn't want to be left out. I didn't want to let you down. And you see that? That miracle, that overcame his fear when he stopped thinking about himself. Like I said earlier, we stop thinking about ourselves and start thinking of each other. That'll give us the courage to overthrow any system. And sure enough, the next week after we did that, the Catholic Church freaked out. The lawyers started calling me saying, what do we have to do to stop another church occupation? It's Easter. This was in 2008. Well, I said, do the right thing. Return the bodies of those children and surrender yourself for arrest for committing genocide. And sure enough, the government of Canada started issuing apologies within two weeks. We forced that to happen. William and people like him forced that change. That's the miracle when we do it together. 
And so I told you that story about Chappas and Brother Fidel and how we get courage from each other. As an inspiration now, I'm not worried what happens with this kidney stone, especially now the great love you've all shown, the money and the help and the concern. It isn't just financial help I've been getting from all of you, from total strangers all over the world, Japan, Australia, uh, a dozen countries. People have said, Kevin, I heard about this, and this is for you. So you, so you don't die, because we need you. And, you know, I've been living under a shadow for a long time, because normally in a day I don't see that. I don't get any of that in a day, because people are afraid. They're afraid of being associated with me too closely, because they might get taken down too. And so, you know, it's like living in political exile. And it's designed to do that, to try to break us down. But today, over the last four or five days, after that appeal went out, I didn't even know it was going out. People put put it out without my knowing. But in those few days, all of this love and support has been coming. And it's affirmed to me again that miracle of how we make it happen. So I want to thank all of you who have donated not just money, but your love and your advice about how to fight this thing. Because it we get rid of the stone, other things will come, not only at me, but people like Johnny, who's sleeping homeless tonight. A bit warmer, a bit more fed, but think of all of the Johnnies out there. And the people in their rich homes who are equally impoverished. You know, the system that kills the bodies of the poor and the souls of the rich. I mean, we don't need it anymore, people. The spirit of creation is communal. Everything is put given to us as a common gift, not one over the other, not one guy hoarding the wealth of the earth to himself. That's crazy. Not one corporation like Pfizer saying, here, we order you to take the shot. Well, screw you, Albert Borla. What authority do you have over me or any government or any court that acts in the interest of the few over the many? Forget it. We do not have to listen to them. We do not have to obey them, ever. We have to obey our sacred conscience and the cries of people like William and Brother Fidel, and Johnny out there tonight. I hope this has moved that part of you that's able to respond. I hope, I pray that that's the case, because there's only us. You know the old saying, if the sun comes up every day, it's only because of people of goodwill. And that's all that stands between us and the devil. I hope you're sharing my tears right now. Because those tears fertilize the good earth and the seed of the future, the seed of our grandchildren that's going to be, that they're going to thank us for what we do right now or what, or condemn us for what we don't do. So open the doors of your hearts and your lives, folks. Come out, join hands. We'll win. We will make this revolution, revolution of love and taking back the earth for all of God's children, all of us. Well, thank you. Appreciate that. I'm not going to read from the book like I plan to, but I will in the future. Uh, go to the show last week and you hear more about these books. I had a great time writing them for my ancestor Philip and my children and grandchildren, grandchildren to come hopefully, and all of my children, all of those kids out there that are mine as well. In the ground, still waiting for justice. That's the. Uh, the great cost and the great burden, that's not a burden at all. I thank you all for today. And just a few reminders, we've got about uh, oh, four or five minutes left. And uh, murderbydecree.com, that's the website of 20 years of sweat, blood, sweat, and tears of me and many other people. And that's the thing about the story. It isn't something I acquired by listening to somebody else or reading about it on the Internet. No, this is in a different category. This is from a life and lifeblood's experience, hard experience of me and many people who aren't around anymore and those who are to come who have life because of what we've done and will do. And so we have to learn from that experience. We have to learn from the experience of our elders. And I guess I am one now. I wouldn't call myself one, but the years have made me one and my experiences made me one. And so I offer that. That's my gift to all of you, my life. That's like a lot of people who find their real purpose, has given in love to all of you. And I remember seeing a poster. It had a, it was at the uh, 
was called the Wobblies, an early labor movement to try to organize the unorganized and the most destitute. And there's a picture of a guy in jail pointing out through the bars saying, I'm in here for you, you be out there for me. And that's why I see it now. Anyone in this prison, we can break down the prison bars and open it up, knowing that they're out there. The way you have all showed me this last number of days, you're out there for me and you're standing there with me. Let's carry it on, people. Murderbydecree.com, the website of the Republic, Republic of Kanata, K-N-A-T-A, republicofkanata.ca. Go and learn more and read about my books on murderbydecree.com and listen to all the shows here, bbsradio.com slash here we stand. This is a revolution in progress, people. We're making it happen. We've forced popes out of office. We've forced genocide under the agenda, just a few dozen of us, me and a few poor Indians. There's a hand of God at work in this, in our selfless devotion. That's when the hand of God is shown, the hand of creation. And in that spirit, I've devoted the show and I devoted all the rest of the time left for me. I devote that to this purpose. And we're going to end on a really good song. It's actually from the time of uh, the Italian resistance during World War II. It was called Bella Ciao. It was a song of the resistance, and uh, it's being modified to present-day lyrics, but I always like to play it. And um, to remind you again, to not only do that reading on those websites, but write to me, angelfire101 at protonmail.com, and do this wherever you are. Our strength is in your local community. Take out citizenship to the Republic. And now there's people in Russia, in Sweden. I just spoke to a group on the uh, on a Zoom call, 100 people in an auditorium in Sweden, in Stockholm, Sweden. They were cheering and applauding after I spoke because they are building the Republic too. This is a global movement. And you can be part of that. Angelfire101 at protonmail.com. Build assemblies in your own community, your own Kamala courts. We are taking back the power. And this song is an uh, encouragement of that. We're going to be back here next week, live. I need you all to stay hopeful. Not a false hope, but the hope that comes out of real lived experience. Your own experience, lie. Take it seriously and live it. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. Ganu Gishwe Gikido, the name given to me by Louis Daniels, who adopted me into the Crane Clan of the Anishinaabek Nation in Winnipeg. And my own ancestors there, including our mixed blood family, the Métis, and those who constitute the real Republic of Canada. I devote this and my life to all of them and to you. Stay strong. Stay clear. We're back next week. I thank you. Love you all. Bye for now.